Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Uh, about a month after I turned 22 years old, um, and about six months after Amy and I got married, I started seminary in Dallas. Um, I just graduated college and moved there and packed up a big U-Haul. My father-in-law, who's here, was very afraid, I think, that I was going to hit something in the U-Haul. But I did it. I did it. I made it through. Um, just barely. I remember that U-Haul. Um, I got in and figured out that the stereo didn't work. Um, and we were driving from Abilene to Dallas, which is just like critical, you know, like the stereo didn't work. And so I had um, an old, I think I still had like a... Blackberry back at that time, but it played music, and I put it on my shoulder, because the speakers were terrible, and I played music with it on my shoulder as I drove like four hours to Dallas, from Abilene to Dallas, 22 years old. The same day I started seminary, I also began working at one of the largest churches in America. It's a multi-site congregation with about 45,000 members, um, and on my first day, the executive pastor took me on a tour of the facility, um, the main facility, there were a few. Um, now, sometimes I give folks tours here at Restore. You may have been a part of one of those. Um, it's basically like, hey, here's the coffee and donuts, and then down the stairs is the main gym, and then there's a the kid's gym over there, and then that's it. That's the end of the tour. That's the whole thing. Um, that one, that tour that I had that day was not like those. The main facility is spread out over about a 138-acre campus. It's got a cumulative square footage of 150,000. So this is a, a multi-hour tour. Um, they try to introduce you to some of the staff. There are about 500 staff at the main campus, so you couldn't really meet them all. Um, but tried to introduce you to some of them. We went to the, um, there's a, a restaurant in it, so we went to the restaurant. Um, there's a Starbucks in it, a couple of bookstores, a bunch of other things like that. So, so it's, a, it's a big, long tour. And it all culminates in the worship center, which is this tri-level venue that seats about 7,500 people. And on my tour, I remember the executive pastor walked me to the very highest point in the auditorium, standing at the top of the balcony, looking down over the tri-levels all the way to the stage and the pulpit and all of that. He makes this sweeping hand gesture like this. And he says, Zach... You have three things in your life right now. You have your wife, you have seminary, and you have the church. And I remember thinking, what about Jesus? Didn't I also have Jesus, right? But I decided not to interject, right? I didn't want to get into it. It's my first day, you know. He said, you have your wife, seminary, and this church. You simply won't have enough time and energy to give all three of them what they need from you. 
you're going to have to cheat one of them, Zach. You're going to have to cheat one of them. And then he gave me such an intense look that it's burned into my memory. And after a long pause, he said, Zach, I don't care which one you cheat, but do not ever cheat this church. I don't care which one you cheat, as long as it is not this church. I ended up being on staff there for two years. I worked, these are not inflated numbers, okay? These are real numbers. <laughs> I worked 60 hours a week and I made $15,000 a year. And they automatically took 10% of my check for a tithe. I never even saw it, they just, it just came out. The church became the center of my entire life, right? Because not only was it my job, all of our community was there too. Everybody we knew. We moved to Dallas like literally the same day that we started working there. It had been set up to meet my vocational, social, and spiritual needs all at once. But then it kind of started falling apart, as you can imagine. I began asking some questions that you weren't really allowed to ask, pushing back on some things that you weren't really allowed to push back on. And eventually it became so toxic and, and so damaging to me and to Amy that I had to leave. And I resigned around Christmas time in 2012. And I had no idea what was next. No idea, but I remember leaving that church was a little bit like dying. It was a little bit like dying. Like, no one talked to us when I left. Like, nobody. Like, people that I was in their weddings, I stood next to them as they got married. I was there for births of children. Walked through some of the highest and lowest points in life with people. Never spoke to me and Amy again. We were completely cut off. Social was gone. My spiritual life was not doing great, if you can imagine. I was really struggling. It's like, God, how can you allow something like this to happen? I devote my entire life to you. I'm going to seminary full-time. I'm working 60 hours a week. I'm making no money. We're taking out extra loans to buy groceries. Like, how could you do this? And I thought my vocational life, my career was probably over as well. I was so hurt and burnt out that I didn't really want to work in churches ever again. And I knew that unceremoniously leaving one of the largest churches in the country didn't exactly bode well for my future prospects, you know, in ministry. But I was two-thirds of the way through a master's program at my seminary, and I didn't want to throw away all the work that I'd done, all the loans we'd taken out to pay for this school. So I went, you know, I quit at Christmas time. I started back in school in January. But pretty quickly into that semester, one of my professors noticed just, like, how much I was struggling, you know? I was just, I was, I was totally disconnected. I was checked out. And he invited me out for coffee. And we went to coffee, and I told him about the last two years, about how, how burned out and broken I was. I told them that if what I had experienced in church was what church ministry was like, that I was done. Like, I didn't want to have any part of it. And he assured me that all church ministry isn't like that, Zach. And he encouraged me to continue exploring different kinds of churches. So I'm like, well, give me one to go to. Give me a recommendation. Like, if you had to work in a church in DFW, give me your top three choices. And he said, I'll give you three, but there's really only one that I would recommend. And it's where I used to work before I became a full-time professor. It's a church called Bent Tree Bible Church. And I'll connect you with the executive pastor there. Despite my bad experiences with previous executive pastors, <laughs> I decided to meet with this guy. And he was super nice. At the end of our time together, he said, I want to connect you with our senior pastor. 
His name's Pete Briscoe. Now, I didn't know Pete from Adam, right? I, I'd never heard of him. I'd never listened to any of his sermons, read any of his books, nothing. I traded emails with his administrative assistant. We set up a lunch meeting for the following week. I had no idea really about this church, like how big it was, like, you know, anything. Like, I, I was so disconnected at this point. But I get there a little early to this lunch, and I, I sit at a booth facing the door, right, because I want to be in control here. I want to see what's going on. I want to see what, you know, I've, I've looked him up online. I kind of know what his picture looks like, but I want to make sure, like, I get to see him before he sees me. And a few minutes later, this guy who's got to be at least six foot five and could not have weighed more than 170 pounds <laughs> walks in. And I recognize him from his picture, but I'm kind of thrown off by, like, how tall and slender he is. And I'm wearing a suit right, which is like what I wore every Sunday at this old church. Like I figured a meeting with a pastor, I got to wear a suit, but he's in jeans and a t-shirt. So I'm like really thrown off now. And I stand up and I kind of wave to him and he walks over with just the biggest smile on his face. And he says, Zach, man, great to meet you. I'm so glad to meet you. And I was like, okay, you know, I reached my hand out. I'm Zach Lambert. He knocks it away. He gives me this huge bear hug. He's got to bend over, you know, to give me this big bear hug. We sit down and he says, why don't you take that suit jacket off, you know? You actually like wearing that thing? And normally I would have been like, ah, you know, it's not too bad, you know? Like, it's just kind of, it's just part of it. But I felt so comfortable. I was like, no, man, I freaking hate suits. I'm going to take this off. This is terrible. Thank you. I like, take it off. I crumple it up. Put it in the seat next to me, you know? So I got my jacket off. I got my sleeves rolled up. And we sit and ate and talked for three hours, three hours. And as sad as this sounds, Pete had a kindness, a kindness about him that I had never experienced in a pastor before, not one time. He listened to me. He asked me questions, listened to the answers to those questions, and then asked me follow-up questions about my answers, never once looking past me, Never once seeing who else was in the restaurant, if there was somebody more important to talk to. Never once checking his phone, seeing if he had other things to do. Never once rushing us through this time together. He also bought my lunch, which, like I said, was great because we had no money at all. And then as we were getting ready to leave, he said, Zach, what do you want to do? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? What's your dream?" I love to ask people this question now, and it's because of Pete. It's because he asked it to me first. And without even thinking about it, I said, I think I'm supposed to plant a church someday, but I have no idea why that is or how to do it. And I was embarrassed when it came out, right? Like, I was embarrassed that I said it. I hadn't really said it to anyone at that point. I hadn't really told people about this kind of desire that God was welling up inside me. And I was embarrassed, too, because I thought, well, maybe this is a guy that can employ me someday. And I've just told him, like, I don't really want to work at your church. I want to go start another church. Like, oh, I'm, you know, all the things are going through my mind. This guy's going to hate me. He's going to walk away. He's going to be like, great, good luck with that, you know, and leave. I'm never going to see him again. But Pete, he thoughtfully paused for a moment. He looked at me and he said, I'm in. I'm in. I don't know how it will look or what it will be like, but I want to help you do what God has called you to do. I want to help you plant a church. Not long after that, I went to work at Bentry directly for Pete, helping him build and lead this pastoral residency program. And I was there for three years, during which I met Matt and Emily Gonzalez, who ended up moving down here with us to start Restore. Pete became a mentor and a spiritual father 
to me. He taught me so much of what I know about teaching, about pastoring. And Bent Tree ended up being Restore, our church's primary sponsor church, giving us the seed money to get this thing off the ground way back in 2015 and 2016. The kindness that Pete showed me that day changed my life. It changed my family. It's changed a lot of your lives, and you don't even know it because your life has been changed by ministries here at Restore that would not have been possible without that kindness over that table at lunch. This church wouldn't be here today without him. I wouldn't be who I am today without him. Years later, I heard this definition of kindness. It perfectly explained what Pete did for me that day and what he continued to do for many years afterwards. Here's what it says. Kindness is lending someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Kindness is lending someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. I was weak sitting at the lunch table that day. I was beat up. I was broken down. I was so burnt out on God and the church that I was this close to walking away from all of it forever. But Pete didn't belittle me. He didn't make fun of me. He didn't even bring it up. He just sat and listened to my story. And he offered me whatever strength he had without an expectation of ever getting anything back in return. And that kindness that day changed everything. Have you ever had something like that happen to you? Someone be so kind in such an inexplicable way. Maybe it was a little bit more random than mine. Maybe it was like a, an encouraging note or a message that you got, an email. It's out of the blue. You're having a really hard day, and a text message comes through, or, or a card comes in the mail, and it's just got the kindest thing in it, and it lifts you up. Maybe it's some money you weren't expecting. One time I got this $5 Venmo from an old friend I hadn't seen in years, and it just said, enjoy some coffee on me. Kindness just made my whole day. Maybe it was coming up to this great, empty parking spot, like right in the front of a store, and you're coming up at the same time as someone else, <laughs> and they give you the wave. Go ahead. They give you the space, little act of kindness. Maybe it was an unexpected meal delivered to you. One of our very best friends here at Restore surprises our family with the best home-cooked meals. I have a pastor friend in Portland who they used to do these random acts of kindness with folks at their church before COVID. They would surprise someone in a grocery store parking lot with a gift card right as they walked in, or, or they would go through a drive through line and they would just stand there and pay for car after car, whatever they ordered. It's really beautiful stuff. So maybe it was random like that, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was really intentional the way Pete showed kindness to me around the table that day. Either way, if you have experienced true and loving kindness, you know that it can change everything. It can change everything. We're nearing the end of this series called Invited to the Table. We just have this Sunday and then next Sunday to go. And so far we've talked about how Jesus' table is a place for everyone. It's a place of connection, it's a place of redemption, and that our tables should be all of those things as well. 
This morning we are talking about how Jesus' table and our tables should be places marked by kindness. They should be places marked by kindness. When people sit down at our tables, they should experience kindness. They should walk away thinking those people were so nice. They were so kind. They took care of me. We're going to be looking at a story from the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So you can turn there if you've got a Bible, if you've got a phone, device, anything like that. The verses will also be on the screen behind me, though, when we jump in. So don't worry about it if you don't have anything. This is a story about King David. Raise your hand if you've heard of King David. Most folks, okay. King David, one of the most famous characters in the Bible, and then a young man named Mephibosheth. Raise your hand if you've heard of Mephibosheth. Fewer, much, much fewer of you. One of the more obscure Bible characters. Now, listen, David is like an incredibly complex individual. There's a ton of information about him in the Bible. His name is actually mentioned almost 1,000 different times in Scripture. That's second only to Jesus. On one hand, right, he's called a man after God's own heart. But on the other hand, he commits some of the most violent and sinful acts in all of Scripture. So I say all of that to say today's message is not an endorsement of David's entire life or his character in general. We don't have enough time to like work through all the nuances of just what a human life is, <laughs> that there are ups and there are downs and there are devastating things and there are beautiful things. This is a snapshot of a really beautiful moment in David's life, okay? So let's dive in. 2 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is paralyzed in both feet. Where is he? The king asked Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, all of this kind of begs a little bit of background question, right? We're jumping in to the middle of a narrative, in the middle of a story. So I want to kind of set the scene for it. So the book of 1 Samuel, this is 2 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel recounts the story of a man named Saul. He became king over Israel. So the people of Israel is kind of God's chosen people. He picked them out so he could bless them so that they could be a blessing to the entire world. That was always the point. God was blessing one family so he could bless every family. He was reconciling with one people group so he could reconcile with all people groups. That was always the point. They were set apart to be this generous, beautiful, life-giving people, to receive God's blessings and then to give them out to anyone and everyone they encountered. But just like us, they really struggled with that. And so they thought, you know what would fix this is a king. If we had a king, because they hadn't really had kings before, they'd had different kind of leadership structures. So they thought, if we could get a king, this would really fix it. And God's like, you don't want a king. I'm telling you, they're not great. They're not great. And they're like, no, 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 we for sure want a king. And so what God does in this story is what he often does in our lives even today. And what we see throughout scripture is he says, okay. And he gives us what we want. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not. But he allows us to go our own way. It doesn't mean he ever leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is always with us. But he allows us to make these choices and then to deal with the consequences of them. So Saul becomes king over Israel. Now, he does really well kind of at first. 
He's got various battles against the surrounding nation that goes well. He kind of fortifies Israel, keeps them safe in a way that they'd never experienced before. But his reign as king overall was not a peaceful one, and it really didn't end well. The last few years of Saul's life were marred by bad decisions and selfishness and lashing out in violence against the people around him, really anyone around him. And that included a young musician named David, who used to play the harp in the king's court. Saul hears that David has been called by God to be the next king, to be the successor for Saul, and Saul doesn't like that. So Saul tries to kill him. Does this whole thing, gets really close to killing him a few different times. David's only saving grace is actually through the warning of Saul's son, a guy named Jonathan. Okay? So, uh, David and Jonathan become best friends, totally inseparable. So Jonathan saves David's life from his father Saul. And then after David becomes king, he makes this promise to Jonathan that he will always care for his descendants. Okay, you with me so far? Always care for Jonathan's descendants. You saved my life. I love you. We're besties. For real, for real, forever, all the time. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your kids and your kids' kids all the way down the line. And when we get to our point in 2 Samuel chapter 9, Saul and Jonathan have both died. But David is still looking to keep his promise to Jonathan, which is why he asks, is there anyone still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Is there any son of Jonathan to whom I can show God's kindness? Now, this word translated kindness here is really important. We're going to get back to it in just a second, talk more about kind of what it means. But for now, just know this type of kindness here means a lot more than just like being nice to someone. So David is looking for a descendant of Jonathan to show God's kindness to. And a servant tells him, yes, there is one left. He's been severely injured, though, and he's currently living at this house, like kind of way out in the middle of nowhere. So those two details are really important for us. He's paralyzed, and he's living in hiding. He's paralyzed. Mephibosheth is paralyzed and living in hiding. Why? Well, it was common in those days, as you can see with Saul and David, for the new king to kill the entire royal family of his predecessor so that there would be no one left to challenge the throne. Now, this not only explains why Mephibosheth is in hiding, but it's also his backstory of actually how he was originally injured and came to be paralyzed. Listen, 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, it's just a few chapters before. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was paralyzed as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. She fled because she thought, they're coming for us next. They're going to kill everyone. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became paralyzed. So Mephibosheth is five years old when his dad and his grandfather are killed in a war. And the assumption now is that King David will come after him and try to kill him too. So Mephibosheth's nurse, she, she knows this. This is the culture. This is the understanding at the time. So she flees with him. But in all the commotion, in all the panic, she drops him. And he's paralyzed. And that's how Mephibosheth lived the rest of his life up until this point. Paralyzed, in hiding, and afraid for his life. That is his whole world. But now he's been found. And David sends for him. We pick it back up, verse 5. So King David had him brought in from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. 
David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Do you remember who just said at your service before? Ziba, right? Remember that? He was the servant. He's the guy who's, right? So Mephibosheth is aligning himself there. He is doing everything he can to be like, I, I don't want to hurt you. I'm not after you. Please don't kill me. He lays his head down low. He says, at your service. I, when Mephibosheth arrives at King David's palace, I know he had to be thinking, this is it. I've spent my whole life in hiding from this guy. And now he's found me. And now he's going to kill me. That's why he bows down. He says, at your service, when David speaks his name. And the fear in that room, y'all, is so palpable. It's so intense that David says next, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. This is not what you think it is. This is something wholly different. You see, in fact, Mephibosheth would quickly learn that David intended the exact opposite of harm for him. Verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for surely I will show you what? Kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Don't be afraid, David says. I have brought you here to show you kindness. Now, this is the third time that the word kindness is used in this story. And like I mentioned a minute ago, the English translation, it doesn't really do the actual word justice. So the ancient Hebrew word that's used here is hesed. Hesed, and it's best described as a covenantal love. It's this long-term commitment to love someone and pursue what's best for them no matter what. It's the kind of love that was so hard to describe that a 16th century Bible translator in England named Miles Coverdale invented a new word to translate it into. Loving kindness, one word, loving kindness. Hesed is used 247 different times in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. And it's actually mostly describing God's character. Not our character, God's character and his posture toward humanity. When God describes himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, Hesed is the only characteristic that he actually repeats about himself twice for emphasis. See, God both is loving kindness and he shows loving kindness. This divine love and commitment is the kindness that David promises to bestow upon Mephibosheth that day. And the cool part is it's not just a promise. David makes good on it immediately. Listen, verse 7. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring, him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now background again, right? Mephibosheth, through no fault of his own, lost his entire family and his ability to care for himself. Not just through paralysis, which was really devastating at that time in the world, 
but also through a lack of any kind of resources, right? All the land that his father and grandfather owned that they farmed to have sustenance, to eat, and then to sell, all that stuff was gone. Mephibosheth was five when it happened. No control over it. So David restores everything that Mephibosheth lost, right? He welcomes in Mephibosheth, not just to his own table, but into his very family. It says that he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And David doesn't just provide Mephibosheth with a meal or even like a series of meals. He gives him the ability to sustain himself and his household forever by restoring that land to him. This isn't just sentimentality or a nice gesture from David, right? He's not just kind of nodding at this promise that he made to Jonathan. This is true, godly hesed, loving kindness. Or to put it another way, David is lending Mephibosheth his strength without reminding him of his weakness. There is a reason that hesed is most often associated with divine love. Because loving kindness, y'all, it is the way of Jesus. Like I said, it's not just who God is, it is what he is all about. Think about it. Jesus lent the disciples his strength instead of reminding them of their weakness as they traveled around, putting their foots in their mouths and saying the wrong stuff and going the wrong way and doing all this stuff. He lent the Samaritan woman at the well his strength. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, lent him his strength. The woman caught in adultery, he lent her his strength instead of reminding her of her weakness. He did the same thing for literally every single person he encountered. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus now lends me and you and all of humanity his strength instead of reminding us of our weakness. He did not look down on a world broken and flailing and hurting and unable to care for ourselves and think, well, that was your call. You kind of went that way, and I'm going to just leave you alone. No, like I said, he lets us go our own way, but he never leaves us. He is always there beckoning, offering, saying, here is my strength. Stop relying on your own. Here is my strength. We don't even have to talk about your weakness. Just take this. My favorite example of this is when Jesus tells the story of the, um, the prodigal son, right? And the prodigal son, he, you know, he, he tells his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all my inheritance. I want to go and I want to leave and do my own thing. And he leaves and he goes to the far country and he squanders all the inheritance and he, he's on his way back to meet the father, right? In the story, father's representing God and, you know, the son's kind of representing all of us. He's on his way back to meet the father and he's rehearsing an apology. It's my favorite part of the story. On his way home, and he's been through a lot, right? Like he's like eating slop of pigs. He's got nothing. He's got no money, no food, nothing. He's like, I'm just gonna go back and I'm gonna ask my dad to just take me on as one of his hired servants. Not even a son anymore. I'll just work for him. That way I can have a good meal and bed and all of that stuff. And so he's rehearsing this apology, Scripture says, as he walks on the road home. He says, Father, just make me like one of your hired servants. I'm sorry I've let you down. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And he gets to this crest of the hill on the land that his dad owns. And as soon as his father sees him, the dad sprints to him 
picks him up in this huge bear hug. And the son starts the apology, favorite part of the story. He starts the apology, and he doesn't get two words out before the dad interrupts him and says, come here. He hugs him. He kisses him. He says to his servants, go, go, go kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. This son of mine was dead, but he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. <sighs> he doesn't even let him get the apology out. That is giving someone his strength and not reminding them of their weakness. Beautiful. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has shown us, he has given us his immeasurable kindness. And here's the really important part. He calls all of us to do the same. We are meant, we are put on this earth to give away the loving kindness that God has so graciously given to us, to every single person we encounter. God's loving kindness toward us is, is unbelievably good and beautiful and amazing, but I fear that many of us have made this huge mistake with it. We think God's loving kindness toward us is only meant for us. We think God's loving kindness toward us is only meant for us. This is an age-old mistake. Like I said, the, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament made it. The first century religious leaders made it in the New Testament. And, and, and the church today still makes it. But God's loving kindness toward us was never only meant for us. God's loving kindness is meant to move through us to the world around us. I want to end with this. Two different times in this short story, David asks, who can I show God's loving kindness to? What a profound question. Who can I show God's loving kindness to? Let me ask you all this. How would our world change if Christians lived their lives constantly asking, who can I show God's loving kindness to? Not just at church. Like when we're out, when we're with our friends, and we're in the workplace, and we're at home, if we approached every situation and relationship and meeting and person by, by looking at them and saying, who can I show God's loving kindness? I'm telling you, it would change everything. Because you never know how God is going to use your kindness towards someone else. See, that day at lunch with Pete, he had no idea that his kindness would change everything. He had no idea that almost 10 years later, we would all be sitting here because of some kindness he showed. We serve a God who multiplies, right? Remember the bread and the fish story? Five loaves and two fish. He fed 20,000 people. He does that with our kindness too. If we will just give it to him, if we will offer it to another person, he will multiply it in ways that we can never imagine. David experienced that life-changing loving kindness of God, and he decided that he was going to use his table to show God's loving kindness to others. David and Jesus' tables were marked by kindness, and ours should be too. So my challenge to us is this. As you get out of here this week, 
I want you to dwell on that question, who can I show God's loving kindness to? Who can I show God's loving kindness to? How can I use my table as a place that disperses God's loving kindness to people? I'm telling you, if we'll do this, if we'll lean into this, things will never be the same. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this incredible story. I thank you that David's life, even though it had significant issues and ups and downs and horrible things and beautiful things, God, I thank you that in this moment, in this story, God, he leaned into this question. Who can I show your loving kindness to, God? And it changed not just a person, but a family for generations and generations. That it wasn't just sentimentality or a nice gesture, that he put his money where his mouth was. He made Mephibosheth one of his sons, let him eat at his table, gave him his land back, God. And that act of kindness changed everything. I pray, Lord, that you would keep that question constantly at the forefront of our minds, that we would be asking always, who can I show God's loving kindness to? And then we would step up and do it. We would love people as you have so deeply and beautifully loved us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.